Hello and welcome to episode 602 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is Monster Kid Radio and I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. We got a, a pretty cool episode this week. I'm pretty happy with it. I'm, I'm excited because uh, I got Beth joining me this week. Beth is my fiance. She's a haunted house designer. She's a writer. She's a creative person. She's one of my favorite people in the entire world. And until recently, she had not seen the 1935 film The Raven, starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. She watched it, and now we're going to talk about it. We had a pretty good conversation about the film. It's something that I had seen before. I'm a big fan. She was brand new to it. Fresh eyes. And we excited to share that conversation with you today on the podcast. Also, of course, we have Mark's Beta Capsule Review and Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and even an email that I'm going to read right now. This came from Kevin Slick. Uh, Derek, listening to the end of 2022 episode, belated bravo on getting to 600 episodes. Haven't commented as much lately as I'd like, but I try to tune in for some of the Twitch streams whenever I can. Same for the MKR episodes, and there's always something wonderful. So thank you for keeping the flame alive. I'd love to hear a Price Poe episode. I'd be glad to join some folks chatting about these classic films, many of which I recall seeing on the CBS Friday Night Late Movies with Ron Adams back in the 70s. Just filled out the MKR questions and the rallies, Glad to see 1957 and 1958 highlighted, having been born in 1958 myself. Any chance we'll see you at the Bash in June? Hope 2023 rolls in nicely for you, and I look forward to hearing more about what you're up to. Thanks again for all the great stuff you present to us Monster Kids. So Kevin Slick is a regular at Monster Bash, and, uh, you know, he's somebody who's become a friend over the years. Check him out, kevinslick.com. He's up to all sorts of really cool stuff, and... You know, if nothing else, listen to his music. He's got some really cool music. I love his stuff, man. I, You know, I, I've always kind of had a, a, a low-key appreciation for, like, bluegrass and that style of music. And what Kevin does is just super cool. He's got a great voice, too. Anyway, a couple of things that he uh, brought up I want to comment on real quick. The ballot is now closed for the rallies, which means you're going to be hearing... Steve Sullivan and I announced the winners of the Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Movie, and Best Monster categories for the years 1957 and 58. That'll be happening here soon. Steve, if you're listening, I'll be reaching out to you here probably within a week or so to make that happen. And I'll probably do it as a live Twitch thing first and then make it available as an audio download as well, Kevin asked or commented on answering the MKR questions. What he's referring to is the impromptu, informal listener survey that I launched last week. I want to say that I got a lot of really good responses to this. I appreciate everybody who's taken the time to just be completely honest with me about what you like about Monster Kid Radio, what you don't like why you contribute the way that you do or don't, how you engage with the show or don't, and everything else. I appreciate all the feedback. And on the one hand, just to address one comment that was made in the listener survey, I'm going to keep doing what I do. I, I will always think about what makes me happy when it comes to doing Monster Kid Radio. So I appreciate the person who left a comment telling me not to worry about what anybody else thinks. Um, and, and, you know, I... I, I 
do appreciate that. Like I said, I do take a certain amount of ownership to what happens on MKR, and it, it's all me, and I get that. But I do want to make it better. I want to grow Monster Kid Radio. I have a lot of plans. Beth and I have a lot of plans for various content creation and media stuff for 2023 and beyond. And I want Monster Kid Radio to be a part of that. But in order for that to happen, it's got to be viable. It's got to be something that contributes to those overall dreams and everything else that we have uh, in the works. And to do, to do that, I, I know that I've got to make it something that you enjoy as well, if that makes sense. So if you haven't already done so, please consider participating in the listener survey. I've done these over the years, and it always kind of helps me know whether or not I'm on the right track, as well as make the show better. Go to tinyurl.com slash survey 2022 to participate if you haven't already done so, please. As far as whether or not you're going to see me at Monster Bash anytime soon, I miss Monster Bash something fierce. Financially, it just hasn't made sense for me to be able to go. And then everything that happened with the pandemic and everything else, I just didn't feel safe about it. And I, I, I do feel safe about going out and doing stuff now, even though I did just have COVID not too long ago. I would love to get back to the bash. Is it something that's in the works for June? I, I can't commit one way or the other yet. I just, I can't. Beth and I have talked a lot about it. I know that she would like to go as well. We have our wedding coming up this year. First part of this year, hopefully, if we can make everything work and certain venues would get back to us. Grumble, grumble. Anyway, uh, we have a wedding coming up, and that's where a lot of our energy and resources and spoons and bandwidth and whatever other metaphors you can think of have been going towards. So uh, we'll have to see. I do miss the bash, though. I like hanging out with everybody. I miss Kevin and Ron and Terry and Scott and Tracy and Chris and Rod and Steve and Bobby Joe and Little Joe and Bigfoot and Mark and Bobby and everybody else whose names I'm forgetting. But I miss it a lot. So it is something that will happen again in the future. We shall see. As far as the Corman Poe films, well, something comes up during the conversation that I had with Beth regarding The Raven. It might make you cringe. So leave it at that. Speaking of which, why don't we go ahead and get to that conversation with Beth. But first, of course, we have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And before that, Mark Maskey's Beta Capsule Review. Let's roll. <music> Sharky screamed and began pounding on the monster's rough skin as the power of its strike thrust them both to the surface. The water surged crimson and Sharky's eyes went wide with horror as he saw the familiar stripe-like pattern running down the sides of the fish. It was enormous, the largest tiger shark he'd ever seen, 15 feet at least, and for just a moment, its doll-like black eyes seemed to glow green in the last rays of sunset. In Monster Shark on a Nude Beach, a shy marine biologist must up his game and stop a series of shark attacks at the Caribbean's most famous clothing-optional playground. Award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan brings you this sexy, action-packed summer read, perfect for fans of The Meg and Jaws. Read three chapters free on Amazon. Find out more at buffbeach.com or sdsullivan.com. 
a human being so horribly slaughtered in the dungeon of doom. Grisly sacrifices for a maniac's vengeance. Men without souls whose artificial blood keeps their cruel brains alive. See just how far maniacal mistreatment go. It's a new bizarre shocker in the master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. Christopher Lee in his greatest horror role to Dracula. When the dead Count's mangled body rises for its coffin, a new siege of the sinister starts. I needed the blood of 13 women. I found 12. They struggled against death. It was that desire to live. It's far out, fantastic and frightening. The creeping, crawling terror that haunts those marked for diabolical disaster. Here's the thrills of more than a dozen horror movies all rolled into one. Uh, nobody will ever escape from the blood demon. We dare you to keep watching the screen through here. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Oh, please, darling, pull me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a Nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name! I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. Live from the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. A young man named Sabu Fukushin observes a fleet of UFOs through his telescope and sounds the alarm that the saucers have come in the 45th episode of Ultra 7. But is anyone listening? Fukushin loves nothing more than to stay up late stargazing, a habit which does not endear him to his cantankerous neighbor or help him stay awake at work. Nevertheless, he lives for his nighttime astronomy sessions, even when his neighbor interrupts them with intentionally annoying banter. During one such evening, he spies what looks like a sky full of flying saucers and immediately telephones the Ultra Guard. Although his report is taken seriously and corroborated by other amateur astronomers, the official response is that the sighting was an optical illusion requiring no further investigation. Fukushin, meanwhile, keeps running into a precocious boy who not only seems to empathize with him, but also accurately predicts further anomalous airborne activity. 
Another overnight sighting yields photographic evidence which Fukushima submits to the UltraGuard, and though it is initially debunked, Anne Yuri determines that the film reveals saucers that can cloak themselves to look like stars. By the time of Anne's discovery, Fukushima has learned the truth about the alien fleet, but finds it nearly impossible to get any authorities to listen to him. The Saucers Have Come is a remarkable bit of storytelling that plays like an independent film, with a strong emphasis on characterization and sense of place. At the same time, the episode often achieves a dreamlike quality, well suited to the astral elements of the story. Details, such as the UltraGuard being swamped with UFO reports and ultimately farming out phone calls to their PR department, enhance plausibility, while the final conflict in which Ultra 7 plays a brief part is more Fantasia than Fight Night. These contrasts combine to create a visually dynamic and mature work of science fiction that elicits not shock, but sympathy for those like Fukushima unfortunate experiencer of the unexplained. In other words, this is transforming superhero television at its most artistic and not to be missed. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. concept, Sinbad's Adventures. Bold in adventure, Sinbad's feats of heroism. Mighty in conquest, Sinbad's devastating power. The Lost World of Sinbad. See, reign of the flaming death turn the sky into a fiery inferno. The giant of Armorcon, whose strength is equal to 1,000 men. The whip dance of the virgins in exotic orgies of evil. See, the Lost World of Sinbad. In Colorscope, amazing beyond belief. SOS, San Francisco calling. Monster has attacked. It came from beneath the sea. Golden Gate Bridge ripped from towers. Rush new atomic weapons or whole west coast is doomed. See Columbia Pictures' spectacular and terrifying... It came from beneath the sea. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, Derek and Beth will be commenting on the 1935 classic, The Raven. This film received full film book coverage in a two-part article, which spanned 13 pages over two issues, FM 83 and FM 84, from spring of 1971. It included 15 pictures. From beginning to end, it was a full, spoiler-filled synopsis with just about all of the dialogue transcribed. Later on in FM 134 from May of 1977, we have this shorter look at the film in an article about Boris and Bela's co-productions. It includes a brief synopsis, commentary, and a description of a key scene. Let's hear what it had to say. The Raven. Dr. Richard Voilin, Bela Lugosi, a plastic surgeon with a Poe fixation, 
is in love with Jean Thatcher, Irene Ware, whose conscious life he once restored through an operation. Judge Thatcher, horror veteran Samuel S. Hines, refuses to let Volan marry his daughter, Jean, but allows her to marry handsome Jerry Holden, Lester Matthews. Edmund Bateman, Boris Karloff, an escaped criminal, comes to Volan for a new face. The insane surgeon gives him one, all right, a face of distorted and hideous proportions. Volan then forces the now horrifying Bateman to assist him in his odious plans. Volan invites the judge, Jean and Jerry, to his mansion, and they soon find themselves in a variety of torture devices taken from Edgar Allan Poe's stories. The judge is strapped under a razor-sharp pendulum like that described in Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum. Bateman, not such a bad chap after all, rebels and Volan shoots him. With his dying breath, Bateman shuts off the machine threatening Jean Jerry the judge and pushes Volan between two moving walls which crush him. Universal justified use of Poe's title this time by including in Lugosi's Poe Enshrined Mansion a stuffed raven to which Bella talks to and by having Jacqueline Wells perform a modern dance interpretation of the famous Edgar Allan poem. While inferior to The Black Cat, this movie is still a well-made quality film. Louise Friedlander's direction is simple but colorful. The film is great fun. It is a joy to watch Bela reveling in one of his most deranged roles. This is the only one of the Lugosi Karloff co-stars which Bela truly dominates. Karloff is excellent in his sympathetic role, and his Jack Pierce makeup job is absolutely horrendous, but Lugosi steals the show. Dr. Richard Volen is totally mad, a complete loon, and Lugosi's overplaying of the role makes him loonier still. The Raven features one striking scene in particular. Karloff awakens alone in the operating room after his operation. Lugosi, from another room, opens a long curtain to reveal six full-length mirrors, all of which leeringly reflect in Karloff's eyes his now hideous visage. His old face was far from beautiful, but it was infinitely preferable to the almost unbearable sight he now sees. Infuriated, Boris whips out his six-shooter and, firing six times, shatters each of the six mirrors. Then Lugosi enters the room. Karloff attempts to shoot him, only to hear the click of an empty gun. The coldly calculating Bella knew Boris would waste his bullets on the mirrors, leaving him defenseless. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Watch out for them, a menace never known to man or beast before, an endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures, so horrifying there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them, watch out for Warner Brothers' screaming new shock sensation, them. Yes, I saw them. They were huge and scaly, and they had gigantic jaws, and, and then one came at me. Kill one and two take its place. 
This is the endless onslaught of them clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them! The most astounding journey into terror ever taken. Starring James Whitmore, Edmund Glenn, Joan Weldon, and James Arness. Them! Today was like any other. The hum of daily activity until... Reptilicus. A beast born 50 million years out of time, spreading terror in its path, destruction in its wake, towering over the cities of the world. Reptilicus. Invincible, indestructible. Reptilicus. In color from American International. Even after you see it, you won't believe it. Reptilicus. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Alright listeners, I am sitting on my couch in my living room right now with... My gal, my fiance, Beth Wespo. You've heard her on the show before. Well, this time around, we're doing a traditional episode of Monster Kid Radio for the most part. Don't normally record from the couch in my living room, but we're comfortable. And, and I've got this portable recorder, so let's use it. Beth, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Hi, great to be back. Hi, everyone. So I'm super excited about this because I was kind of talking with you about how I didn't know what I was going to talk about on the show this week. Uh, what movie I could talk about, can I reach out to get somebody on the show, and you suggested yourself. <laughs> well, you know, gotta have content, right? You gotta, <laughs> gotta keep pumping out the content, and I appreciate you supporting me and, and getting that content, and then we settled on watching this movie because you wanted to watch something in particular, so do, do you want to talk about how we came down to this one, how we picked this movie? Because you had suggested, or you had requested a particular thing vibe oh they, well yeah i you know i'm full into spooky season they're already working on all of the haunted house designs for y'all for next year whether you're here in the portland area or maybe get to go to one of my haunts somewhere else in the country that i've designed um yeah I've, i'm in full spooky mode and in particular i've been doing a lot with like poe and and that whole era I might i might be sort of training the flock of crows or i should say the murder of crows at oaks park to do my bidding so that i can incorporate <laughs> them at some point i haven't gotten them to you know say actual words like nevermore but, <laughs> but we'll work on it so uh one it's always spooky season for us but you'd also mentioned or you requested is there anything with like escape rooms or haunted houses and things like that that's true. And for whatever reason, my brain went to The Raven, 1935, Lugosi and Karloff. And I don't know exactly why my brain went there. Um, I remembered there being, you know, instruments of torture. I can't do a Lugosi voice, but 
<laughs> he talks about doing having this torture collection, which I thought was kind of cool. So that, that's where I ended up going. And it turns out, had some pretty cool stuff that you were commenting on as something you could even use in a haunted house or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I was having a lot of fun watching it. Um, it. It definitely does the spooky old house with extra rooms that aren't uh, immediately obvious when, when you walk in and secret entrances and exits and things like that. And I, I love those sorts of things. Um, I love putting them into haunts. They're unexpected and and just create this whole atmosphere of being totally consumed by by the art that you're completely enveloped. You are in the other world, and I love I love that. So I love when movies are able to give you that feel of like, ooh, now we're gonna see the the real secret behind the scenes. So. When we settled on this, the plan was you were going to watch it on your own. I was going to watch it on my own just because of timing. Yeah. And then we were going to get together last night and record about it. Yes. But <laughs> one of us wasn't able to get it in. I, I did watch the first 15 minutes by myself the other night, and then I fell asleep. I wasn't going to throw you <laughs> under the bus. I, I wasn't going to throw you under the bus. Uh, you did end up watching another movie, though, and I just want to briefly... Yes, uh, to, to clarify, if, if for those of you who maybe haven't seen The Raven and want to go out and look for it, uh, you very much do not want the John Cusack mid-90s, I think. Um, I think it was later than that. I'm oh, sure was it? Yeah. it? It's hard to tell. He looks the same. <laughs> he um, doesn't age. He does not He's age. Paul Rudd disease. Yeah, I, I think both of them somehow got this secret formula from Dick Clark, and they're just like, <laughs> you know, banking money on it. But, yeah, it's it's not good. <laughs> um, it It's not a really, a very, it, it is based on, I believe, the same original story loosely but it's it's not good so definitely stick with the old timey so when you told me that you watched the wrong version of it my my go-to wasn't the john cusack i thought oh you watched the uh vincent price karloff color one from the 60s directed by roger corman which i've not talked about on the show and um i've never seen i haven't seen many of the corman poe films i know i know kevin slick i know you emailed me about those, and I know, don't take my Monster Kid card away. But when you, I thought that's what you were referring to. But sure. No, you went to John Cusack. I've not seen the John Cusack film. I think I've got the soundtrack. I might have listened to it once because I'm a films court geek. But the only thing I remember about that film, having never seen it, were some photos from the production of the film where Cusack is dressed up as Poe in full period gear except which is odd because he no longer looks really like john cusack and he doesn't really look that much like edgar Allan poe either uh he, he kind of looks like alan rickman playing edgar Allan poe you know, you said that and, and made me think about that and that's what made me remember these photos that i saw because then i thought oh yeah i guess i could see that oh wait i remember those photos where the camera wasn't shooting anything beneath the knee and it was really weird to see Cusack in period dress, on set, period location, wearing sneakers. It just was incongruous, and it was a moment of dissonance, cognitive dissonance there, that just it was really bizarre to yeah. see the, 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 the long coat and the 
you know, whatever, and the hairstyle and the whole set done up, and he's wearing these high tops. It was really <laughs> bizarre. And I'm sure in my brain it's kind of evolved into this kind of like real poofy nineties bas- basketball types, I sh- whatever, but yeah. yeah. But I've not seen that one. <laughs> but I did end up watching this movie twice. <laughs> the correct one. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I watched it the day before. Uh, and it's only one hour and one minute long. And then when you said that you hadn't gotten through it, it's like, well, let's just put it on. And my intention was, as while well, we had it on while you were over here, I would like write or work on something. But I just, I couldn't help it. It's, I find that movie to be so watchable. Um, it's something I had seen before, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, huge, huge fan of the classic Universal cycle. The 30s Universal films are are a beast uh, upon them, uh, amongst themselves, I guess. They're, they're so uniquely uh, textured and flavored. You can't help but know you're watching something from the 30s from Universal. Mm-hmm. When Carl Emily and them were still in charge. Well, it's still like it's still the era where the stars were under contract to the studio, mm-hmm. so you see the same people getting used, you know, again and again in in things. But I think the other neat dynamic that that created, in a way, was you had older actors, as you pointed out, even from the silent film era, still getting work, still getting work, and and I, I suspect it was. Largely a situation of because they were on contract, work was found for them. Like I, I, having worked in as an extra and even in small parts that just had, you know, a dozen or fewer lines, um, in TV and movies here in Portland, that's just not something that they bother doing anymore. They just, you know, send out an email or put a post on social media, hire an old person for one day to play a part and send them off. They don't, they're not employed anymore in that way. And it was something that I, I I think is kind of sad in a way and, and missing from the industry that I, I'm not sure we take care of our older actors, our, our treasures really from times gone by the way that the industry at least tried to in some ways back then. Um, it, it's, it's always funny, too, to see, like, former silent film actresses who get on screen and then have the most annoying voice in the world. Yep. yep. Something like that, you know? Yeah. It's very, like, singing in the rain, anyone? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and, you know, part of it, I think, too, is Carl Emley was a guy, senior, mm-hmm. started Universal Pictures, and, you know, his background, he was there from the beginning. He was doing the silent films. And he really had kind of a, my understanding, he has a very family mm-hmm. vibe to the whole thing. And I'm sure part of it was just kind of taking care of people, too, and making sure people had work. I'm assuming. I don't know. I don't know much about the pr- production of The Raven. Uh, what I do know, I gleaned off of things like the Internet Movie Database, which is never not wrong. Um, <laughs> but I, it just felt like, you know, they had this this group of performers that weren't doing anything at the time and Lemley wanted to give them some work and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Lugosi and Karloff both under contract to Universal and they worked a lot together. I'd be willing to bet this movie specifically, The Raven, if you looked at the average age of the cast in this movie versus 
the average age of a similar type of the cast in a similar type of movie these days, I bet your average would be 20 years older for The Raven than it, than it would be now. Because all you'd get were a young ingenue. You yeah. wouldn't, none of, both male and female, these older actors would not be getting these parts today. And so I, I suspect part of the reason that some of those movies are so much better is because you just had people with more experience playing the roles. You just had better actors yeah. in terms of more ex- more experienced actors. Act, you know, when you're older, you have more to draw from. <laughs> it's easier to emote things because you've been through more. Well, and this particular era of film, too, film is still a young art form. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people working in film, they have more stage experience than screen experience. True. Yeah. And you know, people like Lugosi and Karloff, they they cut their teeth on the stage. Uh and, and Lugosi in particular I'm I'm on Team Bela. I, I've made that pretty clear. I love Karloff. I, I love what Boris Karloff does. I feel like Lugosi had more to overcome because of that thick, thick accent of his. It was harder for him to kind of bury himself in Americanisms than it was for Karloff, who comes from England. And yeah, he always had the accent, but he didn't sound as, for lack of a better term, alien mm-hmm. as somebody from Hungary might have. Um, Lugosi was very proud of his Hungarian, Hungarian lineage and background. Um, a lot of his early films were shot in the Hungarian language here in this, the U.S. for the Hungarian American populace population. Uh, in fact, I. Um most of your listeners won't know this, but I was a competitive gymnast growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, never like Olympics level or anything like that, guys. But I, I could do a, a double back tuck. You know, I could do a back tuck standing and do the tumbling passes, a lot of the stuff you see. If you look at the Olympics from about the 1960s, that's the level of stuff I could do. <laughs> but one of my coaches was um, the nephew of Bella Caroli, who was from both Hungary and Bulgaria. Okay. Uh, I believe he had split parentage, but he was from that part of the world. His name Bella also. He loved the Lugosi movies. Yeah? The posters were all over the office at the gym. He would jokingly make quotes. Like he dressed up as him for Halloween one time. Like, it was the funniest thing. And here, you know, and he was here in Portland and had immigrated from that area. And I can, yeah, verify it really, really was a big deal to them to have cuts of movies in their language. Uh Because I got to imagine there just are not a lot of people running around in in the 20th century in the United States speaking Hungarian. (laughs) Right. You know, so to, to have that in, in your native language, I think probably was a real special blessing and, and something that they really, that, that community has really valued. So, you know, as much as, you know, Lugosi was very important in that regard, on the other hand, the studios didn't really, I feel like the studios didn't treat him well. Um, so we watched The Raven. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably safe to say Lugosi's the lead. Oh, yes, definitely. He's driving the action. <laughs> he did not get top billing. No. Nope. He got paid significantly less than Boris Karloff. Really? Karloff made a ton of money. Well, I told you a little bit about like the, the urban legend or the history about why Lugosi didn't take Frankenstein and how yep. that kind of doomed his career, basically. I don't know if it made Universal look at him as somebody who was hard to work with or Lugosi just wasn't given the choice roles after that for whatever reason. 
I think Lugosi did a great job with what he was given. His version of Murders in the Rue Morgue. I mean, I made Christmas cards based on that. You know, <laughs> I, I I love that version of that story. Um, I think Lugosi, I could just listen to him. I'd say read Poe, and he did that in The Raven. He was reciting Poe. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Karloff, I love. But I always want to watch Boris Karloff. <laughs> Yes. And I feel like Lugosi, even though he's got the voice and the accent and a very unique profile, I still can see, yes, that's Dr. Volan versus that's Dracula versus that's Dr. Miracle, Miracle or anybody from the Ed Wood movies or any of the stuff that he ever did. I just, I'll- His characters have different personalities in, in a way that Karloff, well, however, a strong personality, they're, they're less differentiated. I love Karloff, and I, I we're not we're not di- we're, we're not, not bashing on him at all. But there are different. The two of them are very different kinds of actors. Very different. And the uh, the animosity between the two, I think, has been over exaggerated over the years. But I would like to believe that Lugosi had a grand time, quote unquote, torturing Karloff in this <laughs> film. I think there were definitely little moments that I noticed, and maybe it's because I've been on the, the, the acting side of it, and I know sometimes how hard it is to not to not give in to this. I imagine somewhere there's a hilarious gag reel or footage that got cut and put on the floor or reused or something, because you can't... There are certain moments in that movie where he's they're doing the torture scene, he's being tortured, and then the camera is mostly cut away and you see a a brief smile or something. Oh, really? You you see a brief moment of, or I see the eyes twinkling and going, oh, Oh. you can tell he's holding a laugh right there. Like, I know because I've had to do it that that you're holding a laugh where if if you're someone who's done comedy before or stand-up or anything and you've ever had to not laugh at your own joke, you know? Yeah. It's it's definitely that kind of a thing that they had to have had a good time because... Their faces are so animated and their eyes are so lit up. The things that they're not saying in in the scene tell me that they were having fun. That's not something I've considered. I, you know, I, I hear stories about, and again, I believe they're overly exaggerated, but when Lugosi was doing Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello were maniacs on set yes. constantly goofing off you know and well i, I imagine well, similar if you had to re- act with robin williams ever it would yeah. be that kind of a situation yeah, so not goofing off like they were just screwing around but like they they didn't know how, how not to perform mm-hmm. and you know running around with seltzer water and pies and and trying to get lugosi to break and you hear the stories about how lugosi just had no time for that kind of income poopery or or, or whatever but I I think he could have been a very funny dude. There's a, a real twinkle in his eye, especially when he's going mad, and I'm mm-hmm. sure he's just having a blast doing it because he's playing it very broad. When oh he's, yeah, when he's laughing and Poe, you are avenged. You know, it's like, dude, you are you're, you're going full camp and you're loving it. Yep. There is a twinkle in his eyes, and you know, I've seen around Christmas time every year, people will post in the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page. The pictures of Karloff dressed up as Santa Claus and Lugosi dressed up as Santa Claus. <laughs> and Lugosi as Santa Claus, just I find to be a much more captivating image, partly because it's Lugosi mm-hmm. and he's mad scientist vampire dude. Seeing him do Santa Claus is weird, but I'm just captivated by it. And it's, there's a twinkle there that 
God, Lugosi, man. I mm, I would have loved to have met the guy. I, I would have been intimidated by Karloff. I'd want to hang out with Lugosi. Um, you talk about his eyes twinkling, and yeah. that's something I've noticed before, and I've actually had the discussion before with a friend of mine uh, that works in the haunts, how Lugosi gets you to stare at his eyes oh, yeah. and makes it hard to look away. Karloff makes you want to look anywhere but his face. <laughs> and it's not that he's a bad-looking dude. He just presents himself in such a way he tries to force that creepy into your face. And certain haunt performers that we have will do this. There are certain people that are walk-around performers that get up in people's face. They're trying to force it. And it creates this feeling of, oh, I got to look away. Okay, I'm going to look back. Oh, God, it's still bad. Oh, oh man, you know. Whereas with the ghost, he, he pulls you in and he you don't need to look at all the rest of him. He's he's con- typically formally dressed characters, fairly conservatively dressed. It's just that is all supposed to blend away because your job is to look at his eyes and listen to his voice and be hypnotized and be entranced. And so in a way, it's a different kind of horror. It's a different kind of scary. It's the scary of losing yourself into something else it's look staring into the void and you're like oh no the void is staring back all of a sudden yeah versus a type of horror where it's just shock and awe oh whoa oh gosh i did oh, oh i don't want to look at that oh god but it's, it's so gruesome i can't not look at it you know two very different styles of horror different styles of scare that sort of thing you know it's interesting to hear you say that i i was going to ask you actually during this how many other Lugosi films have you seen? Have you seen Dracula? Yes. Okay. So they do make a point of the Dracula eyes and that. Have you seen White Zombie? I've not seen White Zombie. They do it there too. And I had forgotten they had done this in The Raven as well, where there's a close-up of his eyes. Because mm-hmm. that's all you need with that man, is those eyes. Right. They do it in White Zombie. They do it in this. And I'm sure they do it in a few other films as well. Um, oh, I bet. Oh, yeah. I'm Costello, sure they, they yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting way to put it. It's something I hadn't considered as to the why, other than it's like, oh, these eyes, they're cool. I hadn't really considered the why, but you're right. It just kind of, you lose your sense of self a little bit staring into them. And that's, that's a, um, I won't say it's a common trope for actors to use, but there are definitely certain actors that rely on that to get their point across. Uh, one that I'd say it's not really in any way involved in horror, kind of controversial person, but he definitely uses this. Tom Cruise. Watch Tom Cruise sometime look at people and get them to look at him and get their attention on his eyes and to never look away. He wants you staring into his eyes so he can command the situation and control the room at all times. Now, regardless of what you think about any of his Top Gun or any of his other movies or anything uh, or how you feel about him as a person, nobody can deny that he, he can take an audience and get them to look at his face for hours at a time without looking away. And I think a lot of actors, him included, owe that back to Lugosi okay. and those, those things that they would have grown up with in the 
nickel and dime cinemas and you know with the with the nickel popcorn growing up they would have grown up seeing these characters and that was that was the cheap easy movie to go to and everything and i i think a lot of all actors steal any actor who says that they don't steal is a liar we all steal from everyone else that we see it's, any creative it's all mimicry in some yeah. way or another yeah. and sometimes it's even mimicry of things we don't remember but are from our childhood or something i i i think many many particularly strong male actors owe a debt in a way to him to bella for introducing that idea that you can just be the most simply dressed plain you don't have to be loud you don't have to shout you don't have to be obviously violent you know you don't see his characters chasing somebody with a knife typically or anything like that but he's in command of the situation and 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 his victims are definitely afraid even though there's no tangible visible reason for them to be there's a, a sense of uneasiness that comes. Mm-hmm. Even when Lugosi, and of course he's the one running the game. He's not playing the gambling right. game. He's running it because he's yes. in charge. Yeah, it's his house, whatever, but he's in charge. He's the one in control yeah. of your financial stakes at this particular moment. Uh, my favorite part of the movie, one of, one of my favorite moments of the movie, is when he's showing Bateman, Karloff's character, his instruments of torture, mm-hmm. in particular the pit and the pendulum. And for whatever reason, Lugosi's like, here, let me lay down on this. And Bateman flips the switch and locks him in. And for a moment, he looks like, oh, this is a problem. You, but then, you Yeah, you're really worried, genuinely worried. You're like, oh, he could just leave him. But he disarms Bateman by turning it into uh, a situation where we're just two friends joking around and just starts laughing with him mm-hmm. and disarms him with a laugh. You don't expect Lugosi to disarm anybody with a laugh. It works. And I really love that moment in that movie. Um, the other thing that I really love is the mirror room when Bateman oh, realizes yeah. Volan tricked him. And yeah. uh, that whole with the, the curtains being drawn back, you know, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. That was cool. Yeah. That's a cool, um, use of that's something we use in in haunted houses we call it the invisible hand Mm. so that's a cool use of that tactic to create drama not that we'll have like an electronically pulled back curtain that's a pretty normal thing to do but to do it one curtain at a time around the room it creates an invisible man for you to follow which is such a great distraction because honestly if I can get you to look at the curtains dropping, I just walked up behind you and I'm about to scare the crud out of you and you have no idea because your f- attention is so focused over on this other thing. So, yeah, great use of that. What a... When this one popped into my head when you brought up the haunted house stuff and all that, it's not like I'd seen this movie recently. I don't think I'd seen this movie since I owned it on VHS 20 years ago, at least 20, 30 years ago. So it was nice to revisit but there's some really cool, like, haunted house stuff in this. And I would not have thought, consciously anyway, that's a good haunted house movie. Because it's not, you know, mm-hmm. ghosts and whatever. But there's some really dis- there's some really cool things with, like, the secret passages and oh, uh, the, the room that sh- comes down. You're like, good use of a dumbwaiter. You know, the room yeah, coming yeah. down. It is the largest dumbwaiter I've ever seen. <laughs> that's for sure. 
that was oh. cool. The trap doors, the moving bookcases, all, all the things, and yeah, I, so I, cool. I love that stuff. <laughs> it's so really cool. Neat. You also commented on the shadows. So, and shadows are a fun way, you know, to to scare people and alter things. And in in this one, the the shadow that I think stands out more than anything, he has a stuffed raven, and it is repeatedly we see the shadow on the wall of, of this raven. And sometimes there are other shadows that join it and then look ominous. And there are other places in the movie where there are just like shadows of something ominous. Um, and one shadow of a weird like nude angel statue that's <laughs> just a little inappropriate. I just warn you, the shadow's inappropriate. The statue's fine. The shadow is inappropriate. We didn't think that one through, or maybe we did, and someone has a sense of humor. I, you know, it, on I the editing wonder. crew, um, like it's a brief moment, but you're just like, see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know. Car- so Carl Emley Senior ran the studios, whatever. But he turned the horror stuff over to his son, to Junior, Colin mm-hmm. Lee Junior, who, from what I understand, was a little bit more of a free spirit, a little bit more <laughs> uh, subversive. Yeah, it, it's of, definitely uh, a cute little prankster moment that someone yeah. working on the film had fun with, and 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 honestly, I love that because sometimes those little things mean the most to the people working on the film when it comes out, seeing those and seeing that they were included and. You know, having it as proof that, hey, I helped make this amazing thing that is a movie happen. So you've seen some Lugosi films. Mm-hmm. What about Karloff? Less of him, but... Have you seen Frankenstein? I've seen Frankenstein. Okay. I see what you're, I, I see what you're saying, where, where you're going with... He tends to play the same kind of character a lot. And I, and I don't mean that negatively. I mean... It, no, he's very good at and it. And I know he's got some... There are nuances there between, are. like, his character in Frankenstein versus even the the arc he goes on between Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and, and mm-hmm. Son of Frankenstein. Uh, his character in The Old Dark House. Oh, The Old Dark House. We should watch The Old Dark House. Okay. Um, he's in that. Mm-hmm. But he plays a totally different character. But he still... He still feels like... Just it's it's Karloff and, and I love him. I just I'm listeners. I'm curious if you had to pick one, Lugosi or Karloff, where do you fall and why? I want to know why. I'm still trying to figure out why it is Lugosi is my guy. I guess on some levels, I I'd be really uh, interested too if the listeners had any ideas for a Karloff movie where he is very much not playing a typical. Karloff character, um, sort of uh, okay. I, I for to to draw to make a connection to a modern movie. Um, Russell Brand in Death on the Nile. Holy cow! No, is that the one we watched? Yes. Did I have because I had no idea that was him. I know I had to go and double check on IMDb that it even really was him because it was such a phenomenal. The, the recent version. With the the recent versions, years, yeah. Kenneth Branagh, yeah. Nothing like anything I've seen that actor do at any other time. And I am much, much more likely to now go see other things that he's done or independent things that he's done because I realize what he's capable of. And I'm wondering if any of our listeners out there have maybe an example of a Karlov movie that would give a similar experience where where it's really they've allowed him to take 
the lead a little bit, or it's a very different kind of character than what you traditionally see him in, and yet works well, and he does a good job with it. So we're open to your suggestions. We always need more stuff to talk about. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And and again, not dragging Karloff. I love Karloff. I, I worry that... <laughs> I mean, I've met his daughter, you know, Sarah Karloff's sweetheart. And, and maybe that's the issue. I feel like Karloff was a sweetheart underneath the makeup, and I, that always came through. Like, oh, see scares me a little bit and maybe it's the eyes maybe there, there's always an edge yeah, a like, danger to him that more exciting if you had two old houses one owned that had been owned by Karloff and one that had been owned by Lugosi I would be really surprised to find bodies in Karloff's basement <laughs> and I'm just gonna leave that comment there and not say the other half of it that is obvious well, but you know, you know that's interesting um Who's the Ghost Adventurers guy? The the show, you know, the show I'm talking about on Travel Channel or whatever. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. He I know goes around supposedly looking for ghosts, whatever. He at one point owned, uh, like, a par- I don't know if he still does, a paranormal museum in Vegas what? that supposedly has the mirror that Lugosi owned or whatever. <laughs> it's it's garbage. It's not true. It's not Lugosi's mirror. But there's a reason why he picked Lugosi as supposedly owning, owning the mirror versus Karloff. Supposedly exactly. So... Yeah. yeah, there's an edge, there's a danger to go yeah, to. Yeah, if it was Karloff's mirror, it's a nice, neat piece of Americana. If it was Lugosi's mirror, it's cursed. You shouldn't stand in front of it nope. and say certain things three times. That's nope. all I'm saying. <laughs> yep. there, there's, there's an edge there. There's an edge there. Um, the studios just didn't treat him well, you know. And, and That's what I suspect, that once they saw that he could make them money in a certain, you know, once they saw a lot of these actors could make them money in certain types of roles... They were reluctant to give them other roles. And so That's true. in many cases, I think until they either had outgrown those roles or Hollywood had outgrown those types of movies, some actors didn't ever get a chance or they had to wait a long time to get a chance to be anything else. Well, I can't help compare the two, especially when we watch a movie where they're both in it prominently. Karloff embraced America, embraced mm-hmm. everything. And and there are cute little films that Lugosi shot doing interviews where he's talking about how he's trying to learn slang, like the bee's knees and things like that. <laughs> and that's cute. But again, that accent, I think, right or wrong, held him back. Especially once we start going through the war years. Something that is so, somebody who sounds so clearly not American. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Later on in his life, he had some dependency issues. He had his demons. He fought drugs. You know, he was addicted. Um, and it was it was bad. You know, he went through many, many wives. He didn't have the most stable home. You know, whatever. He had his demons. Mm-hmm. But, man, I feel like the studios really didn't treat him well. And, and I understand where the stories and the exaggerations about the animosity the two of them had. Uh, from what I understand, Karloff's only real negative thing he said about Lugosi was poor Bela. Just poor Bela, you know? But, I don't know, just Lugosi. I just, I, I can celebrate Lugosi for months on end on MKR, because I love everything I've seen him in. He did want to do the leading roles. He wanted to be the handsome Clark Gable guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in a version of Nonichka. Um, Nonichka? Did I pronounce that right? I think so. But he's only at the very, very end, and he plays somebody who, like, He's a non-monstrous, non-horror role, you know, but mm-hmm. he's, you know, kind of wasted in that. He could have done so much more. You know, he played Jesus on stage. I I did not. You know, there are pictures of him doing the Passion. 
Oh, the passion. Okay. Because uh, I'm just going to apologize right now for what popped into my brain. I was like, how was he in Jesus Christ Superstar? I no, don't I don't know no, why my brain went no. there. And I was like, that seems an odd role choice, but okay. <laughs> it's, it's, the passion so, makes more sense. But Ghosty did it, and I believe Christopher Lee did it too, which is interesting that the two dra- actors we know for Dracula, Dracula yeah. played Jesus. Anyway. Uh, I don't know what's I don't know where I'm going with that. Men it's playing just, it being gods. It's the age old story. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. So would you watch another Karloff Lugosi film with me? Yes. I'm not talking about tonight, but in the future. Absolutely. And come back and talk about it. Because there's one in particular. Yeah, absolutely. That I think a lot of people consider their best collaboration. Okay. It's called The Black Cat. Which I've heard of. It was shot a few years before this one, I believe. When I told Sarah Karloff it's my favorite Boris Karloff film, I'm not going to tell you what she said because it spoils part of the movie, but she got very like, oh, you like seeing my dad do that, huh? So <laughs> i just leave it at that. Wow. Um, it's, it's really good. It's really dark. It's very subversive. It's very cool. Sounds good. I mean, as the owner of a 30-pound black cat, I feel like I should. Is there? Oh, yeah, I guess there, cats are really technically part of the story. Not, not. <laughs> they're a little bit more involved with this. Well, I don't know. I was going to say, what's more part of the story? Cats and the black cat or Poe and the raven? I don't know. But I do like that they use Poe as kind of like a a jumping off point for the raven. They Even the mm-hmm. opening title cards suggested by Edgar Allan Poe's the Yeah. Raven. And just hearing Lugosi do the Poe poems. Okay, that title in specific, in specific was one that I found kind of hilarious. Hmm. Because, of course, it says it right at the beginning, so it's one that I got to see twice, you know, the time I slept through most of it. Good, and, and the second good point, good point. To have the cojones, and I'll use Spanish <laughs> so I don't say it, so I'm not rude, to, it, to, to put imprint... If Poe could have, this is what he would have wanted us to do, you know, on his behalf is like, wow, that's some stones. That's <laughs> that is some confidence in your writing to say this oh. is what Poe really meant. If he only could have lived in our time, and <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. I think there's a longer recording of Lugosi reading Poe. Um, I'll have to track it down. I haven't listened to it in a long time. Uh, the other scene that I wanted to ask you about in particular, because you had some comments about it, mm-hmm. uh, the Lenore dance number, where he's watching her and clearly making the dancer's father very uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, making me uncomfortable on behalf of this poor woman. Yeah, honestly, one of my favorite characters in the whole movie is the girl's father, who, despite it being what the 30s or whatever it's supposed to be, is like no no that's inappropriate that's my daughter <laughs> like you know he 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 feels justifiably uncomfortable by all these guys <laughs> leering after his little girl but yeah i mean it's it doesn't pass a bechdel test it's not gonna you know it's it, true it's it's not gonna win first prize for for respecting the minds of women we'll go with <laughs> i mean but at the same time, um, you know, I, I, 
I just really enjoyed it. It was really, it was really fun. It's really cute. It's what do you think of the dance number itself? The dance number itself. Um, oh, I did like it. I will say you can coming from a dance background, and I am the last person to criticize anyone's point work, especially now that I have balance issues. I don't think I could get back on point uh, with toe shoes. Is what I mean, like ballet on point, like a ballerina going up on her toes. The actress clearly learned point after the fact. After she had already grown to her adult size, she dances like an adult point dancer who has a extensive background in jazz and lyrical and all these other things. And she does a great job, and it's not technically wrong, but it she doesn't look like a ballerina because she's not built like a traditional yeah. ballerina. She has a much more powerful dancing style that I found interesting. And it's actually a really great example of, at that time, the, the movement for dance to become more free and more lyrical and less restricted and less constricted. Um, so it's neat to see kind of that, that intermixing of the traditional point shoes, but with a non-traditional costume and a whole lot of jazz and lyrical thrown in as well. I, I loved her. I, I love the costumes on this. I love the outfits, the wardrobe. <laughs> but I loved her on stage. I loved the mask that she was wearing. I had forgotten cool. that part. Like I said, I didn't watch this movie prior to doing it for this for many, many years. Between the last time I saw it and now. And I had forgotten almost the entire dance number. Even though I know that's a big part of the whole <laughs> Judge Thatcher realizing Bowen's <laughs> well, really being a creep. Yeah. Dude, it's your fault. You went to his house and said, come save my daughter. That That is true. This is your choice that led to this. But I'd forgotten all of that. And I love that costume. I was I love all the costumes of this. I mean, granted, the men are all wearing tuxes, but the women just look cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the era is great for costuming. And I frankly have to give full props to what I assume are probably mostly the gals in the Universal yeah. Costume Department at that time working, you know... I'm curious, actually. I'm sweating and slaving over sewing machines far into the night because I, I do know, having um, done some research on this pa in the past and worked with older costumers, I worked with a costumer once uh, in the 90s that had been doing costuming in movies since the, since 1925, I think. Holy cow. Yeah, she was a, a friend of my theater teacher that came in and, and helped us with some stuff, and, and she was amazing. But she told us all about how back then it, it wasn't just the country that was in a depression. Everything was in a depression, and so they were reusing and remaking and retooling all kinds of things. I'd be interested to see. We talked about some of the sets and even there are even examples in some of these movies of scenes where they needed a B-roll shot. And so they just took one out of another movie and threw it in and made yeah. it work. I'd be interested to see how many of the costumes show up in other places as well, or pieces of the costumes uh, show up in other places. And it's, you could definitely tell if you look closely what, should be a dress with one style of ribbon and accents is the initial style, but then when you look, the ribbon is actually off of something from a totally different part of the world. Or <laughs> they've added fringe that wouldn't go on there. And and many times it was just the costume departments trying to make do and mend with everything that was in the universal closet, which what a fun costume closet to play in, oh, but yeah. still, you know, 
and and to make things work for the films because the sheer number of films that they were pumping out in those days and, yeah. and the costume load that had to be and remembering that there were no computer generated extras or anything else so even one scene with a ballroom full of people could have taken months for the costume department to the, put um, together the the actual pieces in the opera at Phantom of the Opera, for example, mm-hmm. all the people in the audience, all that. I was looking up her name. I'm surprised she's not attached to this film. There's a woman by the name of Vera West, who mm-hmm. I, I know very little about. I'd like to learn more. And what I keep every once in a while, I think I should do an episode about this, <laughs> except I, there's not a lot of research available on her, but she did all the gowns for a lot of universal productions. Uh, as you and I, the longer we're together, we're going to watch more universal mm-hmm. movies together. I mean, we've already watched a few. Um, that's part of the package, babe, when you agreed to marry me. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> Not sorry. Um, but her name is attached to a lot of these movies. And she starts getting credit gowns by Vera West. Um, she did Bride of Frankenstein in 35. She did The Wolfman. She did a whole bunch of stuff for Universal and otherwise. I'm surprised she, her name's not attached to this. And maybe... You know, it just isn't known whether or not she was involved with it. Or it, what. it could be, you know, um, or... or like what? She's not even listed as being uncredited attached to this one, as mm-hmm. opposed to some of the other ones. But That's she was doing stuff like The Man Who Laughs in 27, which is a silent film, which I know your daughter would recognize that movie because she's a Batman fan, and that's yep. what the Joker got inspired by. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, I love the costumes, I guess I'm getting at. Um the one thing that I would love to see, and I don't know that they would have these on display anywhere. When you have old films, and I hilariously found this out uh, the time I visited the Smithsonian, and they happen to have a pretty good exhibit of stuff from, apparent, uh, especially American films. They've, yeah. they've made an effort to collect memorabilia and mm-hmm. everything. If the movie was going to be in black and white, you didn't have to care what color the material and the trim was as long as it was the right shade. So there are some costumes that if you'd seen them in person are hideous, you know, bright green or mixed with pastel orange and and a red sash. But it's black and white, so it didn't matter back then. <laughs> So it's I'd be very interested to if you saw everything that was in that scene in In real life in color, what would it have looked like? (laughs) What hot mess might it have been that they didn't even have to deal with? Because it'll be fine. You know, that they're looking at on set and seeing, oh, God, it's so ugly. Nope, nope, it'll be fine. In black and white, it'll be fine. It'll all just look elegant, you know? You know, the cinematography for that is such a different skill set than doing color film. Yeah, um... I'm not going to bother looking it up on my phone because I don't think I'll be able to find it quickly, but there are pictures from the set and I think it's the original Adams family. I think it's that one. I Where the house is like pink. Like garish. And green. Yeah. And yes, I've seen those. Yes, exactly like that. But, the- you know, black and white. TV, it looks fine. It looks the way it's supposed to. And, and in fact, I know uh, having talked to the guy that came and talked to my class, they would purposely pick very bright colors because the more saturated materials showed up better in um, some of the different lighting that they used. Well, depending yeah, reflect on the light versus absorbing. Depending light, on so, you know what yeah. level of light and stuff. So, so that there were very many times when things were hideous on set but looked great in the movie. Totally <laughs> yeah. different skill set. Totally. Yeah. 
because you have to think about the chemical process of mm-hmm. the absorption of the light onto the film, the mechanical, the actual mechanical process of light hitting something versus doing all sorts of CGI stuff today. And I, I just doesn't feel the same to me. That's why I love these older movies so much is it just feels more uh, hands-on, more, I don't know. It feels more real. It feels more tangible. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't, in, in some way with modern movies, there's always this feeling of, have I been tricked? There, there's, or I have been tricked. I know I've been tricked. It's kind of like going to a magic show. You know they're going to trick you. That's the point. That's why you're going. I don't go to MCU films because I think that aliens are going to fly out of a portal in the sky and attack. That'd be so cool if they did. But <laughs> but they're not going to, and I know that, and I know it's CGI, and it's I'm okay with my brain being tricked, but it is tricked. And so when we see in some of these older movies things done for real, and I'm sure in some cases it was to the detriment of the physical well-being of the actors oh, yeah. or stunt people. Karl- Karloff. But... Collected a few injuries from working on which is Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein. Probably where the drug problem ended up. No, I'm sorry, not or, Lugosi. I'm sorry, Karloff. Oh, Karloff. Oh, Karloff. Okay. Um, but that is part of why he was so involved with the Screen Actors Guild at the very beginning. There you Protect go. Protect the actors. Protect the actors. Taken advantage of yep. Have would, the health insurance for yeah. them, things like that. Yeah. And, and Lugosi was one of the founding members of that. Again, he, he saw what was happening and he was very much into the people's rights and all that, which is why mm-hmm. he had to flee his homeland because that uh, was not it was a form of communism that wasn't really looked happily upon, so he had to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. People's rights and all that. Anyway, um, but yeah, no, exactly. I think you're right. I think <sighs> I'm sure that's part of the reason why Lugosi got hooked on stuff. Because even back then, too, the doctors prescribed morphine. It was like, yeah, sure, of course they would Oh, well, you're hurting? Here you go. And if the studio's driving you around and everything, you know, no big deal. Yeah, or, have, or I think you got a license, so yeah. It, yeah, you know, no big deal in, in those terms. And I don't think people were thinking about or even realized the long-term consequences of stuff at that point. But people did do their own stunts in a lot of ways. And, and I think for the guys especially, there was probably this feeling of, I'm the man, so I'm going to be a manly man. I can do that stunt, no problem. We've seen actors these days break a leg, Tom Cruise. Uh, he's smashing into a building because he can do his own stunt, you know? So I, I, I'm well, sure there was some of that back in the day as well, to well, some I'm extent. I'm sure part of it's a pride thing, too. And yes. Because what, what's, I mentioned it earlier, Phantom of the Opera. Early, early, early Universal film. Um, Lon Chaney Sr., who was notorious for doing his own stunts. Did his own makeup. Did his mm-hmm. own, he was a one-man show. He did all his own stuff. By the time his son comes around, Lon Chaney Jr. doing things in the 40s, there are rules in place that say you can't do that. Yeah, we can't just set people on fire <laughs> anymore. I, 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 and, you I'm know. sorry. You can't, you know, do this like monkey climb scaling up of a, you know, three-story building like your dad did. Sorry, buddy. Darn, I don't have to put myself in dangerous way to make a movie. But uh, And I guess yeah. that's it. That You know, if it's, if it's a, it's a 2020s movie... And somebody jumps across a great chasm between two buildings and makes it barely. You're like, oh yeah, cool CGI effect, you know. Unless it's Tom Cruise, we're like, oh yeah. But if somebody in the 1930s jumps even, frankly, anything more than about four feet of a span across rooftops, you're like, that dude actually did that. Oh my gosh, you know. So it's it's a little more impressive in the the authenticity. 
Not that Lugosi did a lot of crazy stunts, but, you know. I just, I love that you are willing to watch these movies with me, which is great. You've introduced me to some cool stuff, too. Like, you know, like we mentioned Death on the Nile and Poro and, you know, we're, I'm not ashamed to admit it. You've got me hooked on Outlander. Um. He's a Sassanach, ladies and gentlemen. Ah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I just... Good stories are good stories, and they're still good stories 80 years later. Yeah. If they were a good story 80 years ago, then they're still going to be a good story today. And, you know, we can set certain things aside. Like, yes, I, I, I felt honestly bad for Karloff at the point where he he starts walking into this party with all these fancy people. Oh. And, oh, good Lord, their reaction is so bad. Like, you'd be so embarrassed if somebody you knew reacted to somebody who was... Not that ugly. He's not that ugly in it. He's he's very Karloff, and he, but it's not that hideous. It really the, isn't the face thing. And yeah, I mean, it, no, the movie's not PC about it either. When Lugosi is like, "Oh, some Arabs did that to him." Yeah, it's excuse it's, me. It's not great in that way. But, um, but what? <laughs> I, and to be fair, one of the female characters does come back after the fact and go, "Okay, you just startled me," but then she's like, "But you're so ugly." I'm like, okay, you could have just left it at you startled me, but, you know, I'm like, dude, poor guy, like, you know, but. Yeah, yeah. I dig it, man. I, I, I liked it a lot. It was fun to revisit. It was fun to show it, to share it with somebody who'd never seen it before. Uh, listeners, I think Beth is going to be on the show a lot in the future. Uh, it's not going to become the Beth show as much as that's kind of what my life is now. But, which I love, but we're going to have Beth on the show because she's not seen a lot of these movies. So, you know, it's going to be cool to share my love with these, of these movies with somebody. Fresh victim. Fresh eyes. <laughs> and she's got amazing eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Just fresh eyes. Uh, it's going to be fun to, to go on this kind of scattershot journey through some of my favorite classic and not so classic movies. Someday I'm going to share my honest with you. But I'm going to choose my moment. Okay. And I've made this clear. People have asked me about this, and, and it's come up in conversation. As much as I love Mono Sands of Fate, I know I've got to choose my moment. It's got to be under the right circumstances. Putting it on right now, bad idea. Got to wait until, you know, the mood's right. When when the mood is right, Monos will strike. So wow. you're thinking, like, wait till there's another snowstorm and we're totally locked in and I can't get away? Captive audience. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of what I was thinking. Captive audience. Yeah. So yeah. You, I'm surprised. You, I mean, I could not have gotten down the ice on those steps last week. And yet you, you missed your two weeks ago, but you missed your moment. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's okay. Manos is eternal. There will be time. You know, we haven't set a lot of plans in place yet. We could do a Manos-themed wedding. I'm going to go with no. Duh. Fine. There'll be a lot of nerdy stuff at our wedding. That's not... Monocene bachelor party. That's what I, I would... That's on you guys, yeah. I... Actually, I don't know what that would be like. <laughs> Listeners, curious. Just curious. What would a Monos the Hands of Fate bachelor party be? I, I'm curious now. Because I can't even imagine. Unless it's us just driving around until we get lost somewhere in Texas. I mean, just... That's where it's set. At least where it's shot. I don't know if they really say where it's set. 
Yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. Um, <laughs> MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Email me with your thoughts on a Monostans of Fate-themed bachelor party. Um, and what you thought of The Raven, if you've seen The Raven, or if you have any thoughts about the conversation we had here. Uh, if you want to call in and give us a strong talking to about how we uh, maybe didn't say a whole lot of rah-rah about Karloff. I mean, we love Karloff, but, you know, whatever. Um, or if you're on Team Lugosi, I need the uh, I need to know that I'm not alone. So I do have one more request for your listeners okay. to help me out with something. Okay. It, it is for one of my haunts uh, coming up this year. Okay. I would love suggestions for your oldest, most classic movies with scary clowns. I will not make this particular monster kid watch them with me. I know he's not. I don't have a problem. You're with, okay with that? I'm okay with clowns. Okay. I just think. Because we, we are doing a, we, we're, yeah, we're, we're looking at doing some sort of creation where the theme is too many can't say it on the radio clowns. So I mentioned the man. Who, have you seen the man who laughed? Uh, the silent film. No, okay. I don't think I've seen. I, that I wouldn't one. say that he's like a creepy clown in it, but there are some clown-like things that happen in it. Lanchini Senior played a clown in something, but again, I don't think he's a creepy clown, unless clowns are inherently creepy. But I am trying to cover clowns, you know, across the the spectrum of of film and and TV and media. So I'd love to include some early clowns. Um, I have the world's scariest cookie jar in my possession. It is literally called the Evil Clown Cookie Jar. Look it up on Google, y'all. It's it's a scary freaking cookie jar. We had to put it away in a cupboard. It's it's a really great way not to eat cookies if you're trying to lose weight because you do not want to reach your hand into that thing. Um, and, but yeah, any old creepy clowns like that 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 you can give me some some uh, direction towards, I would love to. Consume that media and include it in my homage to why clowns are horrible. Well, and now I'm curious, too. Like, <laughs> how far back does that trope go? I mean, I'm sure clowns have creeped people out for millennia and, well, for however many years, whatever. But in terms of film, creepy clown. That feels like it'd be an early one. Yeah. It'd be good silent movie. It's not something I've ever, yeah, I would know? imagine. It's not something I've ever really investigated or thought about, but. Yeah, I'm open to suggestions, folks. Again, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Uh, Beth, thank you for doing this. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Um, yeah. I don't know what else to say. I can't wait for next time. Ooh, the black cat. Black cat. Or Manos. Or, well, maybe we'll do the black cat first. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still listening? I, I hope you're still listening. After I said that I hadn't really watched any of the Corman Poe films, uh, I, I hope you're still listening, especially you, Kevin. Um, I I, uh, I know. There are so many blank spots in my uh, Monster Kid movie watching history. I mean, I've watched a lot. But sometimes, sometimes there are these holes that I need to fill. And tell you what, I will make 2023 the year that I finally sit down to watch Mask of the Red Death and all of the other films that I keep meaning to watch. The Price Poe films, man. I love Price. As much as I love Karloff. And that's another reason that I hope you're still listening. Because I started to feel really bad after I recorded with Beth. I really hope it didn't come across as like we were dragging on Karloff. I love Karloff. I really do. I just have a hard time seeing him as a villain. 
or a bad guy. And I know sometimes he doesn't, but he just seems like somebody that I want to hang out with and spend time with. I can't think about Karloff without thinking warm and fuzzy. And when it comes to my monster movie actors, I guess I want something a little bit more edgy. I, I don't know. 20 years ago, I would have told you I was a Boris Karloff guy. So maybe it's just the way my brain works. I go through these cycles, these phases. Who knows? Whatever the case is, though, please know that I love Karloff so much. I think he was a very talented, talented man and brought a lot of life and joy to this monster kid here. But I'm still going to be on Team Bela. I just said <laughs> how I am, it's who I am. And that's why I love uh, The Raven and a lot of the other Logosi films. Anyway, I hope you're still listening despite all of that. And I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode of Monster Kid Radio. As Beth and I also said, we'd love to hear what you thought about this conversation about The Raven. And if you have any information about early creepy clown movies, that would be cool too. Please email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2484. This is available on our website monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to everything else we got going on links to our Facebook page, group, Twitter Reddit, Patreon, Discord did I get it all? Twitch? Yeah, that's there too there's a couple of ads over there on our website as well, just a couple of graphics advertising the two shirts that I have available, the two new shirts that I have available for sale right now Hawaiian style shirts, $35 and that includes shipping one celebrates the Crestwood House books that uh, introduce so many of the monster movies to us monster kids. And then we also have a brand new shirt. Just got it last week, the prototype anyway, and I love it. So it's available for sale now. It's the Monster Kid Radio Flying Saucer logo repeated pattern. And it, it just looks cool. Like I said, you'll find graphics to these little ads to these over at monsterkidradio.net. So go check that out. What's coming up next week? Still don't know. I have not planned that far ahead. Actually, somebody suggested in the listener survey that I get some sort of guest coordinator to help me kind of plan things out a little bit better. And I love that idea. Unfortunately, Monster Kid Radio doesn't have the budget to hire anybody to do this for me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how likely that is, but I would love if I had somebody who could help me line this kind of stuff up. It's just, it's hard. It's hard to make it happen when I can't pay anybody to do it. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know what's coming up next week, but uh, I will be racking my brains and hopefully come up with something soon. And as I did this time around with this week's episode, as soon as I know what's coming up, I'll make sure I make an announcement, at least on Facebook and Twitter. Very least, we'll go there. I really could use some assistance. I really could use some helpers moderating things, kind of organizing things, scheduling things. But again... I can't pay you anything. I wish I could. I really wish I could. I'd love to even be able to have some moderators on Twitch so I felt comfortable letting a Twitch stream run over and over and over again, nonstop, outside of the special occasions that we do on things like Christmas and New Year's and, and Thanksgiving and all that. You know, if this is something that you're interested in, again, I can't pay you. But... I don't know. I just feel weird asking for help without being able to offer some sort of compensation. But, you know, that again, maybe this is an irrelevant uh, concern. Maybe this is something I don't need to worry about. Let me know in the listener survey, if you don't mind. And again, that's at tinyurl.com slash survey. 
2022 or email me or call me or reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, for, you know where I live, come knock on my door. Don't knock on my door. That would be weird. But you, you know what I mean. All right, let's wrap this up. I want to remind everybody, the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Thank you for listening. You're the best. I seriously mean that. Monster Kid Radio listeners are the best listeners in the world. I stand by that. I'll die on that hill. Ciao.